So good evening everyone. Welcome to the new newcomers or the late comers, better late than ever. And um, so in the evening we are just asking for questions. For those who haven't been here, we've been discussing Avatar Tattva, and we began our discussion on Sunday with a beautiful uh, glorification of Balaram from 10th Canto of Bhagavatam on the part of Sri Krishna. It's an explanation of that uh, beautiful poetry of the Bhagavatam about Vrindavan and Baldev's part in that, role in that, making the environment as conducive as Krishna was describing it and so forth. And then we segued into the uh, broader discussion of Avatar Tattva as it's uh, explained both in Chaitanya Charitamrita in brief, where we've been reading from in the morning, and where Sanatana Prabhu is enlightened by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu about the um, six different kinds of avatar we actually entered into the part where he's describing the Yuga avatars and and uh, Sanatam Prabhu played some mischief uh, as Mahabhu saw it and tried to met, get Mahabhu to admit that, that the Yuga avatar for Kali that he was describing was was the person that Sanatam was sitting before. So, nice section. And then uh, again from Bhagavad Gita in the morning, the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita begins with some uh, description of the history of the teachings that Krishna is imparting and it leads naturally in the context of Krishna is trying to awaken faith by citing the history of the teachings, their credibility due to their being enduring into new doubts on the part of Arjuna as to the position of his friend on the chariot, which Krishna then uh, addresses and which gives Krishna the opportunity to speak about his omnipotence, his eternality, and as we'll see tomorrow, the reason for his why of his descent, the where of his descent, and and uh, the nature of understanding. So with that, we'll take any, any questions. Yes? So um, <clears throat> my idea is that I have a, like a Chrissy essence that kind of is my vibrational, special self. Um, would that be called my soul? And is that soul a drop from God, making me a part of God? Does that make my essence God? And um, if I'm not God, then what am I and what am I doing here? If you were God, you might know the answer to these <laughs> questions. <laughs> and I want to know if I'm trying to find my way back to God, like back to my true self. Well, um, one thing is that we uh, are teaching that there's a difference between you and your body. You are the thing that animates the body. And body means mind also. Mind is a subtle kind of extension of the body, or body is a gross extension of the subtle mind, might be a better way to put it. And so we, you, I, we, all of us, we have a physical and psychic makeup. But beyond our physical and psychic makeup is, is us. And our 
physical and psychic makeup are only as much us as they are a product of our desires. And our desires are a product of our association with and attachment to matter in pursuit of joy. Because there's no joy in matter, we're not always that happy. And uh, the identity that has arisen from that kind of attachment and pursuit of joy in the wrong direction is not the real us. So I would say you're not a woman. I'm not a man. You're not an American. Uh, somebody else is not a Canadian or Indian or whatever. We're not, uh, we're culturally we are, psychically we are, we have a Western rational uh, problem, makeup, and uh, and so forth and so on. But it's, uh, so that's kind of abstract because we obviously are very identified with the, the psychic and physical dimensions of our kind of external false self and so forth. But the essence that is you, that's different from all those things, is uh, it's, it's like categorically different. One side is matter, the other side is consciousness. And you're of the nature of consciousness. And so you, your essential self, is now you know, named Chrissy, but it had different names at other times, in different bodies, and different personalities even, that arise from that bodily identification. So the process of yoga is really kind of unraveling that, that identity that's always changing, that's Chrissy today and is you know, Tom tomorrow. Today you're somebody's daughter, tomorrow you may be somebody's, well it doesn't come that fast, but you know, you could be somebody's mother and, and then you could be somebody's son in the future too. So we understand that there, is, uh, there are many units of consciousness, innumerable units of consciousness, and they have a source, like many rays of the sun, the sun is the source, there are many rays. And um, some of the rays are beneath the cloud that's produced by the sun. That cloud is, is kind of an illusion that has us identifying with the changing phenomena. We kind of remain constant, but matter transforms around us. And so, according to our desire, because we're, we're alive, we're consciousness, we have desire, then our desire in relation to matter causes matter to form around us in one way or another, and we call ourselves this, that, or the other thing. And so this, that, or the other thing is a passing thing. We are the constant thing, the enduring thing. We're the ever kind of constant observing factor in the ever changing and transforming show of material nature. And so we're a little unsettled because we keep identifying with the changes rather than with that which is constant, which is ourselves. So that's your essence as we would see it. And yoga is for finding out that essence. Now, uh, what is that essence in relation to God? Well, I would say this. If there's anything in this world that most resembles God, it's you and me and every other conscious being. In other words, consciousness resembles God more than matter, more than a big building, or more than a big mountain or a powerful waterfall or... What in this world best comes, is most uh, closely resembles God is us, because God is pure consciousness, and we are made of consciousness also. So uh, the simple and kind of introductory explanation of these 
non-introductory topics, if you will, is that, well, yeah, you are God. You are that. You are that which makes the whole thing go round. Yaidam daryate jagat. Jiva Bhuta Mahabaho Bhagavatam says, there's a jiva, it's an, jiva means kind of life, actually, and it refers to consciousness. The units of consciousness are making the world alive, making it go around. Hmm? Your body appears to have life because you're in it. And you extend yourself beyond your body into your house, my house, my car, my boyfriend, my husband, my son. By that little word, my, you go into those things. And it's you, the you in those things that you're attracted to, the consciousness. Um, so, so we're God in that sense. And the Upanishads teach like that. That, as I say, if there's anything in the world that most resembles God, it's us. So we are God in that we are consciousness. God is consciousness. Matter is different. So we're really a lot different from matter. But now if we look at the, the whole situation a little further, we see, yes, we're the closest thing to God in this world, but there's a problem with it, and that is that we're, we have to ask these kind of questions. So that being the case, then we're led to believe, well, why am I deluded if I'm God? And, and if I am, there must be a power greater than God to cause me to be deluded and, and not know the answer to these questions and, and develop attachments and all the confusion and anxiety that comes from that. All of a sudden, it starts to become a, we start to become a pretty poor excuse for God. Hmm? And so, then if you look more carefully at the sacred texts and the teachings of great teachers, they, then they want to nuance that understanding that you're the closest thing in the world to God, but you're different from God too. Your consciousness, God is consciousness, just like the ray of the sun is the sun. We sit in the room, the rays of the sun come in and say, oh, the sun is in the room. And there's truth to that. But it's different than having the sun planet in your room. The whole ball of fire. We would wilt in, in, in proximity to that. So there's a oneness between the rays of the sun and there's a difference at the, same, at the same time. They're one and they're different at the same time. So we're one with God and we're, we're different at the same time. And the difference is as beautiful, if not more than the oneness. Because the difference affords us the opportunity to have a relationship with our source. If I am the source and you are the source, then it's goodbye to you and it's goodbye to me. We're all just one and there's nothing more to say about it. There's nobody to talk to. Um, so a doctrine that says that you are consciousness, consciousness is God, realize that you're God, is also a doctrine of knowledge because that's true. There's knowledge to that. And the ignorance is that you're matter and you're, you're American or woman or man or white, or black or white and so forth. That's the ignorance. So there's knowledge to that, but there's not any much room for love in that. There's an abstract form of love in realizing yourself to be consciousness, not matter. The abstract form of love is that you don't exploit people anymore by attachment and so forth. You stop kind of exploiting because we're taking, what I mean by exploiting, we're taking because we feel empty. Because we've identified with something that's empty and that will fail us, the body. It can't be maintained. The identity arising from the body, it's, it's not maintainable. It can't be sustained ultimately. But 
bent on trying to sustain it for lack of any other understanding of how to go about life, we have to be on the take. And when we take the repercussions, that's called karma. And so forth. that's called ignorance um, in the broadest sense. So to rise above that and forego the taking is a kind of love. It's, 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 but it's a little bit abstract in relation to what we call love in this world, which is reciprocal dealings between different people and there are different shades and nuances of it, uh, friendly love and different kinds of friendly love and uh, romantic love and parental love and all kinds of love. So that's kind of like a one not love, you know, get away from not love is, is going in the direction of love. But it kind of, we have to think, well, yeah, okay, love in the sense that we're thinking about it, of being dynamic with movement and excitement is false. Love is still peaceful and it's alone. It's one. Because if you and I are the same, ultimately, spiritually, there's no difference between us. We're both God. means we're both one. And in the Godhead experience, the enlightened experience, there is no other. Do you understand? In that metaphysic, there is no other. There's only Brahman. And we are that. So there's not a lot of room for any reciprocal dealings, which has obviously much to do with what, what love is, is about. As I said before, love requires that we become one. And it also requires that we remain two. It's something like, you, I'll take your desires and you take mine. How's that? We'll change heads. You know, we'll change minds. You take my heart and wear it on your chest, and I'll wear your heart on my chest, then we can always get along. So it's the two, but it's a dynamic two. The two become we. We is a one, is a unit, but but there's two that make up the, the we, right? So therefore, for a metaphysic that posits the ultimate reality being love rather than knowledge, which is the eradication of ignorance, I'm saying... There's knowledge in love, but there's more in love than knowledge. Love is bigger than knowledge, or it's, it's the biggest knowledge. It's the end of all knowledge. It's the kind of a knowing that's essential, and, uh, and when you love, you, you, you know what to do, and uh, uh, fulfilling, and so forth. So ours is, uh, coming from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, metaphysic of love. And therefore, it, it addresses this issue that while we're a God, yes, but we're not, too. So it says, yes, the not part is the reason for our present situation of ignorance. And so in order to overcome that, the, our oneness with God has to be realized as much as then we have to move away from our, the duality that's created by our material identification. And we come to understanding that we're consciousness. Then we can, if we do that in the context of making a love, if we will, connection with the source, then when we do that, when we separate ourselves from matter and the duality, that's not the end of the show. We don't just sit shanti, 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 peaceful forever, alone, so to speak. This is a crude way of talking about it, but uh, words have their limitations. Um, but, but we have something more to do, and it's a dynamic affair. And so in order for this kind of enlightenment that we're talking about, and the pursuance of and being successful in that pursuance of a love metaphysic like this, then they're required that, that the Godhead has some part in the role and therefore the, the descent of the Godhead or the 
the sacred texts, which are an outreach to us from that side, or saintly persons canvassing, speaking about these things, exemplifying these things, and so forth, in the midst of our ignorance, our misconception, and so forth. And so we are like a drop, you know, of the ocean, but there's a difference between the drop and and the ocean. And um, the analogy is only goes so far because once you put the drop in the ocean, then you don't know where the drop is anymore. But, you know, it's more like we're like maybe, I don't think any analogy will work entirely, but we're like, you know, dots on a painting. A painting's made up of so many dots. If you look closely, there's dots there. They're still there. They're all part of the painting of Krishna Leela, but there are so many individuals nonetheless. And, of course, the analogy fails in the sense that the, the picture is complete without the dots. <laughs> In, in and of itself, something like that. But then again, the, uh, the dots are there, so they're not going away. So he's complete with his shakti, I guess you could say. It works pretty well. So so that's, uh, I tried to answer, you know, there's, there's different ways you're going with that question. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, so something like that. And, um, and so the means then to overcome the duality of our material identification involves like making this higher connection, cultivating this love. So we're chanting, for example, and, and so forth. And um, what's, what's happening is that ignorance is being removed and ignorance is stored up for a long time because our karma, we've been plugged in to this exploiting and this taking for, for eons. And so all of the reactions haven't accrued as of yet. There's this like bank account of karma that's going to keep us around for a long time. In material existence, so that is being mitigated by the is mitigated by the chanting. It's like if you have a guru, like who and you take spiritual guidance for to go progressively and systematically. The guru he or she is something like like a court appointed attorney for someone who's declared bankruptcy, who says my karmic debt is just too great. I've maxed out. I have no life of my own. I'm only paying these debts. So the court says, all right, well, come in the shelter of the court. We're going to appoint an attorney. He's going to take over your case, you're going to talk to your debtors, your creditors, so you're going to pay them down a little bit, you're going to negotiate with them, and and uh, not going to pay them the full amount. So we're going to pay them something, and after all, they're all indebted to God, so he, they, you know, they owe, so they go, okay, I'm back off, you know, <laughs> something like that. And then we live within the parameters given by the court, if you will, and then that then when we engage ourselves in such a way, not so, so as not to like plug in Further. We, we learn how to react to our karma as it manifests, whatever to extent will continue to manifest, as it works itself off in the context of bhakti or burn, is burned away. We learn how to react to it in a way so as not to be plugged in and perpetuate it. We kind of, we kind of witness it and so forth. Step back from it. Meanwhile, we engage in activities that create a different kind of future for us, and a different kind of means a different kind of present for us as well, spiritual present. So... That's kind of the, the idea. Yeah. Sound good? Yeah. yeah, sound good to me too. So, <laughs> that's what we're doing here. <laughs> Need to refresh my memory every now and then too. So, any other question? Further question along those lines or any other question? Yes, Kishangi. Um, I was thinking about the object. You said that it's not, the idea is not for us to come and see the deity, but for the deity to see us, we go in front of the ladies so we can check on us daily, but 
I was thinking that it's also said that beauty worship is for beginners or unestatic artists because we can't see that see Krishna everywhere. We have to have like a special altar, and, and or we wouldn't remember Krishna if we didn't have a special place to go at the temple. So, so I was like thinking that. Are we actually doing the art for Krishna's pleasure, pleasure, or are we doing it so that we would remember him, or both? Well, um, so the idea is that yes, in one sense, the temple, the altar, and so forth is a is a focal point for us, where uh, by the arrangement of the guru, the god, and the form of the deity is present, and then there's a ritual language and and code of behavior and so forth by which the deity can be approached and um, and through which there will be reciprocation in the form of the purification of our hearts and minds and so forth. And if we do that properly, then the universality of the deity will become um, apparent to us. Sometimes people like to go and say, well, why should I go to the temple? God is everywhere. And that's true, but the way they conduct themselves, you, you wonder if they really understand that God is everywhere. And if God's in the temple, why wouldn't he go there too? In fact, he's there in a particular way, in a very well, kind of a concise way. Um, so there's a lot of value in, 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 the, in the temple worship. And um, as I say, if, if it's done properly, successfully, and so forth, then one will see that in every body, there's every body has a temple, and in every heart, the God is present there. When we'll have a kind of a kindness, jivadai, towards all living beings and natural compassion and respect for life and and so forth. And as I say, the universality of the deity will become apparent. And in such instances or at such a point, then the necessity for the deity worship is relaxed. The more one can find the deity in the name, in a meditation, for example, on the name, in smarnam and then the less necessity there is to go. So there's a necessity at a certain point for beginners who might sit and for meditation and fall asleep, or their minds might wander here, there, and everywhere. So the deity is a very special avatar. It's called arch avatar. It's one type of avatar we haven't discussed. A particular type of descent of the godhead arranged by the acharya or the guru, appearing in material elements of paint and wood or stone or something like that. And then there's the language and procedure and so forth for approaching the deity that um, will enable us to see it for what it is, you know, the manifestation of the heart of the guru who's, who's harboring that, uh, that, that form there and um, worshiping that, that, that form of the Lord. So, so at any rate, as I say, a proper and yogic approach to that uh, deity entering into the, the realm of ritual should enable us to see the universality of it and, and then conduct ourselves accordingly. So the deity's there for us, yes, that's one way to look at that. But um, your question is also then, well, are we pleasing the deity or are we there for our purification? But the two are not are inseparable because the more you decorate the deity, then the more you decorate your heart. What I wanted to say is also with regard to the deity that it's one thing to, and I was saying, forgive me, one thing to sit in meditation, right? But you might fall asleep 
even if we find that devotees trying to do japa of the nam, and sometimes they may fall asleep or they become distracted, so it's not so easy to do. But now if you worship the deity, it's pretty hard to fall asleep when you're standing there. And you've got to pay attention. You've got to say the mantra, you've got to light the candle, just move the arm in a certain way, and there's a whole language and procedure and so forth. You have to learn all that, so it's uh, potentially very consuming. And the idea of meditation is to consume and arrest the restless mind in the least, to stop the, the waves or the brittis in the ocean of our chitta, of our organ of internal organ, if you will, for lack of an English term, of perception and experience. This chitta is, is reflecting. The Mahabhava called cheto darpana. Darpana means like mirror. It's like a mirror. It's placed before the world and reflection comes on. These are brittis, so many thoughts. What are they like? Waves in the ocean. We want that ocean to be peaceful. We want that mirror to be clean. That, one, that it will reflect the true image of reality upon it. And we don't see the world, actually, according to yoga, but we see in the chitta a picture of the world that uh, reflects. And according to then the, the vrittis, the, the desires and the mental constructs arising from that, we get a distorted picture. So the idea of meditation is, is to settle these vrittis and Bhagavad, you know, vritti, for the vritti of Bhagwan of God to come on the on the on the mirror of the mind, something like that. This is, you know, that's that's, that's like the perfection of Astanga Yoga. Bhakti Yoga takes it a little further, but at any rate, my point is that in trying to settle this mind, it's not a, such an easy um, affair. Bhakti is very generous, and the deity worship is one example of it. To do yoga, you have to sit. You have to do. Of course, you have to have yama niyama, right? I, I, you have to have some ethical, you know. I don't know how many yamas there are in the yamas, five or six of each or something, like non-violence and celibacy and this and that. You have to follow these things. And then you do, you do pranayama, right? Pranayama, and astanga yoga, pranayama. So there's some kind of like physical purification of the body and of the in, internal organs and, and uh, for making the mind peaceful so that you can do, you know, what... Uh, dharna or what is it? Pratyahar, pratyahar. You can withdraw then the mind from the sense objects, and then dharna. You can actually concentrate the mind on the object. The meditation and concentration turns into dhyana, into meditation and samadhi. Trance. So, let's take the deity worship for example. A lot of these elements are employed. Like we we have to have. A certain you, for, to worship the deity in bhakti, you have to take mantra. Man, you have to be initiated. You have to get the mantra that corresponds with the deity. The de- the mantra is employed in the service of the deity, so it's it's um, it's part of that like language of the realm of ritual and so forth. And so you got to get the mantra. And in order to get the mantra, well, you're going to have to conduct yourself in a certain way that the, that the guru feels that I can give the mantra here and it won't be. Wasted. I won't be throwing, you know, pearls before the, the swine. So the guru wants to see that there's a requisite faith and understanding. And understanding means corresponding activity and conduct, the way you conduct yourself. So there's the yama niyama is, is there. And then the, then the pranayama, you know. Pranayama is like, we do like buddha shuddhi. It's the same kind of concept. Certain mantras are chanted for, what is it, like 
नहम विप्रो न चा नरपदो न सूर्यो नहम वणि न चा गृहपदीनो And then, in that consciousness of that identity, that in the least is, I am different from matter. I am servant of Krishna in my eternal form. I enter into the altar, sacred space, which is the place of sitting. Then you know where. And now you you with withdraw your mind because you've gone into the sacred sitting place, if you will. Use it a yoga context. Context. You withdraw your mind from all the sense objects, and they're all rather. Conducive objects for remembering Krishna there on the altar. He has his paraphernalia and so forth. His cows are there, or whatever, and uh, and so then you then 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 you you have to concentrate on the procedures. It's pretty consuming, easy to get kind of caught up in, and and then you you know then you may do the do the hartik and uh, then it may be accompanied by kirtan that's like the samadhi or something you know a celebration it says anyway there's kind of a parallel within bhakti but look at how friendly it is because actually if the object is to arrest the restless mind these are very it's a user friendly way compared to just okay sit now and look at the blank wall like a, like a typical Maybe an oversimplification, but I don't know if it, you know. You sit in a cubicle in a Buddhist monastery and just look at the blank wall, and you try to get rid of all thoughts, try to stop thinking. Well, that's a challenge. Now, if you can, if your mind can be arrested in another way that's friendly, and it's in the context of doing that, you're not only erasing these brittis, but in the mind or or removing them, you're actually developing love for God because there will be reciprocation from. From the deity, also, and you'll see things in a way that you didn't previously, and so forth. So, yes, it is for you, but and your purification, and so forth. But your purification results in the extent to which you engage in the aratik or the seva puja for the satisfaction of the deity. So that should be that's that's the consciousness with which you enter into it. So the two aren't kind of in, inseparable. And yes, the Archa Avatar, it is a type of descent of the Godhead in this world that's super friendly of all the types of Avatars, most approachable manifestation. And, and so, yeah, through, through that manifestation, that incarnation, then he does take pleasure. He does, um, sure, and there are many examples of him saying so. Sanatana Goswami had a deity, and he lived in the forest, and he had no... Means really to provide for himself or the deity, he used to hang the deity in a tree and worship the deity with chanting and so forth. And then he had some. He would go begging, and in the begging bowl he'd get some like flour and he'd mix it with water, make a fire, and make some bread, kind of unleavened bread. Well, he would offer to the deity every day. But he had so much love and devotion that the one day the deity said, "Haven't you got any salt?" <laughs> and he said. First, you ask for salt. Then what? What'll be next? Then you want some butter. And then you want, you know, I'm a, you've, if you're going to live with me, then you know you have to live with what I have to provide. So this is a high state of deity worship. Hmm? 
as you can imagine. And the deity was very pleased with Sanatana's behavior and so forth and, uh, and his devotion. Otherwise, obviously, he wouldn't have spoken to him. We say the deity is very kind for not speaking to us because if he did, well, that'd be it. We'd be busy, busy, busy. We'd have no life. So he's very generous with us. He lets us have our own life, come every now and then. Okay, you know, accept worship and so forth. And, but the more we approach the deity as if the devotee, the deity is Krishna, the more Krishna is going to respond in that way. That's just common sense. In the Sanatan Goswami story, of course, what happened is that um, there was a salt merchant coming up the river going to sell his salt, and he got stuck uh, in the river. And in the night, and a young dark boy came in the night and told the captain that... Uh, what did he tell the captain? That... Uh, I don't know, Sanatana Goswami sent me here or something like this, and just do this or something and you'll get free, and the boat went free, something like that. And so the salt merchant was, was very pleased, and then when he, came, he sold all the salt, remember the deity wanted some salt, so he sold all the salt and came back with half of the money, he built a temple. He came to Sanatana and wanted to give it to Sanatana, Sanatana said, well, build a temple for the deity. So these are some of the wonderful, kind of, there are thousands and thousands of stories like this, and millions of them that are unrecorded in the lives of uh, deities and, and devotees and their reciprocation. And we all have our own experience of that to one extent or another by entering into the whole affair. And that experience grounds us in, in such uh, procedures. And it's not just kind of a belief kind of a thing. There's experience. And the experience, again, will be large extent relative to the extent to which we approach the deity with a view to please the deity. So, yeah, he does eat those things you offer and so forth. If you offer them with love, he eats the love, something like that. Does that help? So, we're actually a little late, and I was a little late coming, so I beg your indulgence for that, but um, the deity's Arctic is supposed to start. We've we've gone over, but yeah, and again, this is Kirtan, so Kirtan supersedes Seva Puja. What time is it now? 6.20. Oh, it's only 6.20. We've got some time. We have a little time. Okay, I saw the door close. But... Okay, anything else? Yes? Well, I was thinking, like, why would perfected practitioners worship the deities then? Why would what? Why would, like, Siddha Mahatmas worship deities if they don't need that anymore? Like some uh-huh. babachis or something. Uh-huh. Well, uh, because the deity comes to them and wants to be served in that form. Mm-hmm. Hmm? And so they do. They do Baba Seva. There are many even self-manifest deities. So, or they also do it to set example for others. But mostly renunciates don't. Mostly they don't. They do if they create a mission and then establish deities for the sake of others and so forth. And of course the Goswamis were doing that. But also these deities came to them by their own arrangement, and that was part of establishing the whole lineage and so forth. So, and you know, most of the stories of the, oh, the those uh, renunciates worshiping the deity are, they don't have big temples and so forth, and they're carrying a deity around their neck, like like you wear a locket. You know, they got the deity around the neck. Wherever they go, they they carry him, and the deity's talking to them and asking for service. So they're not going to just put him down. So that's a it's a prominent type of manifestation of divinity in this world. What else? Another question? I have a question. Yes? 
about the soul. Like, well, just using that word, it's kind of vague, and can we break that down into components to understand more, like, what is it that carries from one body to the other? What is it? It seems like to me, and the things that come to me are like, there's a feeling, there's some kind of memory there, there's... And then with our mind in our life, we're like analyzing what we're feeling, so it's like, kind of like a mix, getting mixed up. And then also there's the paramatma, and so I understand that it's next to the soul or with the soul. And is that, is paramatma, is there individual like pop paramatmas that just kind of follow the soul? Or is that more of all as a group? One thing about the soul is that it's pretty hard to feel it, unless through yoga you actually feel it and hard to conceptualize it and think of it. But when you experience the self as different from matter, then the experiences correspond with the kind of things that are described in the scriptures. So it's kind of like you're, you're suspending the oppression coming from the mind and the oppression coming from the senses that are always pulling on us to hear this, to smell that, to taste that, and to go out. So. In the beginning, there's when that 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 oppression is is like lifted to an extent, and the self is coming out, and the the, the or the, the lower influences of nature, greed and lust, are being diminished by the practice of yoga, rajas and sattva guna. These chains of so to speak are being relaxed. We come to sattva. Sattva is a kind of a purity of material existence, a subtle, you know. They're talking about a subtle hierarchy within the influence of matter upon the soul. And uh, the influence of Rajas and Thomas, for example, Thomas, is, the influence is, is, is that we, is, is ignorance and lethargy and so forth. And conversely, the influence of sattva is clarity of thought. So in sattva, the highest, higher, higher degrees of sattvic influence, freed from the lower influences of nature, one can get some sense of what the soul is. Before that, it's more or less a theory. And, excuse me, there's, it, sattva means it corresponds with knowledge and happiness. Now, soul is categorically different from matter, so even sattva is only a, like an approximation. It's kind of like, you're kind of like at the airport looking at the travel brochure or something, where are you going to go? And it's like, well, that's where I'm going to be, and wow, and I'm at the airport, and I've got my ticket, and, or you're even in the air, and you're looking down, and there it is, you know, India, I'm here, and I'm still, I'm going to land, uh, something like that. So there's some excitement, but there's, there's a difference between that and being on the ground, right? You don't get dysentery drinking even in, you know, Air India. <laughs> uh, but uh, once you get on the ground, there's a good, there's a good likelihood that might happen. So, so um, you know, and uh, to to feel the soul to feel, is to feel yourself, and um, that will come as we these lower modes of nature influence releases, and so there'll be happiness, and the, and the soul, you know, unplugged from matter, is, is has the uh, potential to experience a huge relief if you will, a huge relief that's kind of kind of remotely positive in terms of bliss. But the relief, in other words, relief is, is the primary experience. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. I'm free forever. I don't die. And then you cry and so forth. 
feel great. It's, it's kind of celebratory. It's like feeling, it's like feeling at home. I've, I've, I've arrived. I'm closer to my, to what, what I am, what, what, what I, I feel natural. I feel at home. Something like that. So we, we, in the context of bhakti, of course, it's complicated because we associate with great devotees and a great lineage and so forth, and their ecstasy is, is reflecting on us too. So we may feel glimpses of even more than the soul, even even shadow of, of bhava and ecstasy, and your hairs will stand on end and tears will come to your eyes and your voice will choke and so forth. And So this is some, you know, ways in which the soul is felt and experienced. Now, we have a mind, we have thoughts, and so forth, and you're trying to think, well, what is it that goes from one body to another? It's me. Well, a lot of those thoughts and remembrances and whatnot, to an extent, they go. They are kind of a composite in our psychic dimension, which is a subtle body. So while the gross body is subject to demise, the subtle body is a vehicle, a mind body, a psychic body, that the soul goes in to enter into the next body. So it carries with it some some memories in the form of impressions that make him predisposed or her predisposed to act in a particular way and so forth. So we shouldn't confuse that vehicle of subtle uh, matter with with the soul. It's a ca- it's a carrier. The idea is to get free from from both. It carries the soul. It's not in the soul, but right. As far as the paramatma, paramatma means the God who's like the Godhead manifestation kind of figuratively described as being in the heart of everyone, directing the wanderings and, and so forth. Um, it's, uh, it's the uh, idea that to the body of the world, there's an oversoul, so to speak. Hmm? And it's that paramatma that expands itself into so many souls, like sparks in the fire that make the whole world go round. He's the oversoul of the whole fair. I don't know, like, there's so many cells in the body. They're all alive. So many souls. And we're the prominent soul in the body. So the Paramatma is like the prominent soul. It's a little different, but the, of the whole world. The soul of the world, so to speak. And, uh, and um, we're like so many souls in, in the world. So what gives us life? Is it the Paramatma that makes us... What gives us life is that we've always been alive. <laughs> we, we are life. That's what, nothing gives us life. We are alive. But it would be the Paramatma and not the soul as far as what makes us the soul is part of the Paramatma. It comes from the Paramatma. It's, energy. it's one of the energies, the Jiva Shakti of the Paramatma. It's, it's uh, one with the Paramatma and, and different, as we were explaining earlier. So, we've always been, we always will be. We don't have a lot of reason to think otherwise. That's our experience. If we base life on experience, people mostly say that experience is what goes you know, furthest. Our experience is we've always existed. People tell us at one point we didn't. People tell us at one point we won't. It appears to us that some people won't or aren't anymore, but our own experience of ourselves is that we've always existed. We have no experience of not existing, obviously. So go with your experience. That's, it. Yeah, I mean, That's the idea. From one birth to the other, how does it how, how does it know how to keep continuing on on the path? You know, I guess it's a subtle body, right? Because it has some memory. Of yeah, 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 yeah. In the Paramatma is directing the wandering, so to speak. So 
there's an oversoul directing the wanderings. And then the, you, you take the next body and the karma and the sung scars, they, they kick in. And so you start conducting yourself accordingly and reaping your, the fruits of the past that you've sown with regard to your spiritual life and your spiritual progress that you've been involved in. At a certain point in your next life, that comes to the fore also. The bad karma that you have will come first, for the most part, play itself out. And then and your yogic practice will come to the foreground and you'll find yourself um, attracted to uh, spiritual life again, take it up. And, and so and the better you get at that, the more you can remember what you're doing, where you are. Bharat was a great devotee and in the last minute he, he, he developed attachment with deer and a deer died and he, he took... Or he died, he took birth as a deer, but he remembered his previous life as a deer. And so he used to stay in the forest, and wherever the sages were reciting the Bhagavatam, he would go there and listen. Deers have good capacity to listen, and they have good ears. So, yes, story also tells us we should listen carefully, like a deer, you know, the sound of the Bhagavatam. And so he heard that, the next life he became the famous Jud Bharata, self-realized soul. And then, like, okay, some Christians have this idea of angel, too. There's no correspondence to, like, Paramatma and angel. I mean, it's almost like, you know, that you're being carried on, you're being taken care of. <laughs> the angels and these things, what, what we're talking about here is mind stuff, really. If you take the Bhagavatam's perspective, then heaven is a, is a mental realm. So mind is, a, is an ontological whatever thing. In, 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 in the yogic world. It's not in the material, uh, scientific materialism. In the metaphysic of scientific materialism, then mind is matter. Mind is brain. Now, we have a different metaphysical outlook, and that is that mind is a stuff. And it's not just what's in between your ears. It's a stuff. So it's astral, if you will. It's, it's the psychic realm. There's all kinds of possibilities there. That are, that are not there in the physical world. It's more expansive. In this realm, you can see gold and you can see a mountain, but you're not going to see a golden mountain, a mountain of gold, not, not too tall of one anyway. But in your dream, you could see a mountain, you know, as tall as the, as the sun and full of gold. And, and, but you say, oh, it's not real. It's just in a dream. But mind is more real than you might, might realize. And so there's a way to travel in mind also. And what, what, what do we know about mind materially from a scientific point of view? You know, not a lot. We're trying to make it one with the brain, and we this not. I mean, we're not, but some people are, and they're having trouble doing that, or or they think they're they're making progress in that regard. They're finding correspondence between functions in the brain and whatever thoughts that people have. But correspondence is one thing, and uh, what do you say? Being the same is an, is, is another thing, and. And there will be corresponding material manifestations that come from functions of of mind. So anyway, there's mental a mental realm. So the heavens are like depicted, uh, understood as being this mind stuff. Therefore, if you want to go to heaven, you don't go by a spaceship. You go by yoga. You go through or some similar process. Now, the nature of this mind is it's it's, it's very uh, subtle very flexible and so forth, and, and it can take different appearances. So let's say your approach to God is, is Christian rather than Hindu, okay? And it's esoteric Christianity, and you start to become acquainted with the subtle 
realm, the mind realm, and you get experiences corresponding with a particular world. You see that there's angels and so forth, and then you go to the Hindu side, you get other things. They look a little different and so forth. <laughs> so it kind of has something to do with the nature of the subtlety and the flexibility of the mental realm, perceived in different ways and so on and so forth, described, talked about in, in different ways. So you have these paths that seem one in many respects because they're talking about essential spirituality and they're esoteric, they're ego-effacing and, and so on. If, you know, the, the more esoteric you get in Christianity, the closer you get to Hinduism. They start talking about reincarnation and the difference between the body and the soul. And you find another Christian adapting meditative practices and, and so forth. So uh, this is the way I look at it. Anyway, the, you know, where are the angels? They're in a Christian kind of mindset and approach to divinity. And they're real, hmm? as much as the mental realm is real. Something like that. And then, of course, beyond all that is, is Brahman and then the, the worlds of spiritual love and so forth. So, you know, what, you want to say, find something analogous to angels, then you have the Vishnu Dutas, you know, the, the messengers of Vishnu who came to Ajamil and six can over the Bhagavatam, or something like that. Does that help? I mean, you have to explain why different people in different esoteric paths along the path have different experiences their ultimate experience is not that different, if you look at it. You know, it all culminates in the beatific vision, for example, in Christianity of Catholicism, some beautiful, you know, it's very analogous to, to Brahma, Shantarasa, passive adoration of just uh, the, the, the great vision. It's the same thing as Shantarasa. But in between this mental realm, we find different. We find angels over here, we find Gandharvas over there in Hinduism and so forth. So it's a little bit... It tells us something about the nature of mind and the orientation with which we go towards, towards the goal. What will show up in the mind stuff type experience? I mean, that's as far as I've got when I was thinking about it a while ago. And so, I mean, I don't think that much about other paths and what they're like and so forth, but sometimes you want to make some, you know, sort it out and what's the nature of the experience. So Christianity has, and it's and Catholicism it has a wealth of that kind of angels and archangels and all kind of stuff. Right? So they're there. Their minds made out of mind stuff. So that's something to stuff your mind with right, for a while. <laughs> all right. So I want to thank you for your time, and uh, we'll stop there.